True Crime Uncensored. I'm Burl Bear. That's Mike Boyer, producer Magic Man Allen. And on the phone, we have the brilliant and talented journalist, A.J. Flick. A.J. Hello. Hello. You know, this is a fascinating case, fascinating story. You got a best-selling true crime book, Toxic Rage. Of course, you know, I got to ask you, what are you wearing? You know, I spent all morning trying to figure out what I was going to wear. Yeah. Uh And um, I am wearing a shirt that I like to wear when I'm traveling. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it says, fight like Ukrainians. (laughs) Ah, good. Mm. We like that. Well, congratulations (laughs) on having a best-selling true crime book. Thank you. And uh, this case has received a lot of coverage. We'll get more coverage today on the show. Uh, In fact... Not only has this thing been covered on Court TV, 48 Hours, uh, Discovery, Solved, and October was on there in 2008. Uh, it's also been voted most popular show by the Ku Klux Klan, the Anti-Hispanic League, and the Anti-Semitic Society. Well, good for them. <laughs> so, <laughs> tell us the story. You you covered this for the Tucson paper. Uh, it's a credible case. Give us the background on this, please. Yes, um, yes, it was the uh, big news when it happened. Um, I, I was um, covering courts for the Tucson Citizen, which no longer exists. And uh, one night. Um, this uh, young, popular eye surgeon was found stabbed to death in the parking lot of the medical complex where he worked. Mm. And it was it was shocking because those things don't usually happen, you know? Right. Not in Tucson. And this was just off a busy street, although it was, like I said, at night. Um, his car was missing, so the thought was perhaps it was a carjacking. And uh, so immediately, you know, they they set about, you know, uh, processing the crime scene. And about midnight, they said he was he was found around ten thirty. Around midnight, they said, well, uh, we know where he lives. We've got his identification here. We better check out his house because perhaps there's another victim there. Right. And uh, so they went to the house, they knocked on the door, there was no response. The, the door was unlocked, but it had a chain on it, so they yelled into the house, you know, Pima Kelly, uh, Sheriff's Department, no response. They, they got into the house through an open door in the garage and uh, made their way to the house, found what they believed was the, uh, uh, the master bedroom, opened it, shined their light in, and there was a woman sleeping in the bed. And they announced themselves, and she sat up and she said, how did my husband die? How was he killed? Really? And they said, ma'am, we haven't told you why we're here. <laughs> yeah, we're having an overdue parking ticket. What? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that sounds and, highly um, suspicious to me. And, and it was, uh, you know, for the next hour or so, they they eventually did tell her that her husband had been found deceased, but she kept asking wh- how he was killed. And they said, why do you keep asking how he was killed? And um, and so they, they, they talked with her more, and, and this was uh, Daphne Stidham, the victim's widow. Um, and... Uh, 
eventually, you know, they, 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 they asked her where she had been that day, what clothes she was wearing, um, everything like that. Her, her father called at some point and she said, Daddy, they, they think I did it. And, um, but the more they talked to her, the more she talked about her husband and his life and who perhaps would want him killed. And she said, well, there's only one person, Brad Schwartz. And from that moment on, Brad Schwartz was the focus of the investigation. Well, Brad if, I'd been, was, if I'd been in law enforcement, I would have, the very fact that she says, how was he killed, who murdered him, or whatever the exact phrasing was, that is highly suspicious to me. And, and every, every deputy who wrote a report that night put in some kind of suspicion about her, but she was never investigated. They never checked her clothes, they never checked her, her whereabouts. But they were on to Brad Schwartz, who was another eye surgeon who had actually hired the victim, Brian Stidham, to come to Tucson to help him with his practice. Brian was a very talented children's eye surgeon. And uh, so they, they started looking into Brad Schwartz, and they connected him with this uh, kind of low-life uh, drug abuser named Bruce Bigger. And so they eventually accused Brad Schwartz of hiring Bruce Bigger to kill Brian Stidham. Now, wait a second. He was stabbed 15 times. Well, as a reporter and a true crime person, you know, as well as probably our audience does, that stabbing is a very intimate form of murder. And knives are most often used by females rather than males also. And carjackings are usually not done with knives, especially stabbing people 15 times. Yes, and there were no defensive wounds. This is getting weirder and weirder. Mark over in the corner. I was wondering if there was any indication if he was conscious of when he was murdered or not. If there's no defensive wounds, either he didn't fight back, he was surprised beyond belief, or he was unconscious and then stabbed. Um, the prosecutor said that uh, it was a blitz attack, and that explained the, uh, the, the, all the multitude of stab wounds and no defensive wounds. But to believe that, you would have to believe that Brian Stidham, first of all, the, the time of day it happened was unusual because Brian Stidham usually left the office before the office staff. Brad Schwartz knew this. They practiced together. The, the doctors never stayed later than the uh, staff did. That one particular night, Brian Stidham stayed late in his office to teach a group of University of Arizona medical students. Hmm. There was no evidence that Brad Schwartz knew that or Brian, uh, Bruce Bigger. The only person that we know of who would have known that in Brian Sidham's circle is his staff and his wife. Yeah. And so the there was lots of testimony about a man wearing scrubs um, hanging around the medical center that afternoon. A lot of different staff people saw that. Although being in a medical complex, that wouldn't be that unusual. Right. 
But you would have to believe that the plan was for Bruce Bigger to take a knife, to go to the medical complex, hang out all afternoon waiting for Dr. Stidham to come out, waiting after everybody left till it got dark, waiting till, you know, Brian Stidham's car was the only car in that parking lot. And Brian Stidham came out alone with his car door open and Bruce Bigger stabbed him to death. Makes no sense. And they never found the murder weapon. What was kind of interesting was when um, when they took uh, one of the juries to the murder scene to show them, you know, the proximity of everything. Uh, and, and in Arizona, jurors can ask questions. And they were talking about how they looked in the dumpster, didn't find a knife. They, they eventually recovered the car, didn't find a knife. Um, and one of the jurors said, did you look up on the roof? Because it was a one-story complex, and it would have been easy for someone to throw a knife up on the roof, right? And right. nobody would look there. Nobody looked there. It may still and they be said, there. Even it, it could still be there. And they said at the time, they said, it, you know, if we find a knife up there, it won't be of any use because we can't, we can't say for sure it's the knife. Well, yes, well, they could. Yes, they could, because there would be blood evidence, and you can still recover it, even though it's two years later. Possibly. No, dried blood doesn't mean there's no DNA. Well, it, it wouldn't have been dried blood if it if it was you know freshly used. It, it could have it could have been it could have been washed away by our lovely um, summer yeah. m- monsoons. Yeah. Well, you know, even with monsoons, there'd still be some blood in the hill. Yeah, this yeah, you think there might be that's just, by the just strange. Um, I was I was wondering this case for your newspaper. You were there during the trial and you know talking. You taking notes. But why did it take so long for the book? Um. Yeah. Good. Good question. So uh, first, uh, Doctor Schwartz was put on trial, and then Bruce Bigger. And after Doctor Schwartz's trial. I got a call from a, a publisher, a local publisher. He he handles um, legal books, and um, this would be his first true crime book. But he he liked my coverage, and he asked me those magical words I always wanted to hear. How'd you like to write a book? <laughs> And um, I said, yeah. Well, we had to wait till after Bruce Bigger's trial was over. Right. And then we signed a contract. And um, it was actually a pretty quick process because I had all the research. I'd gone to every hearing, every trial day, everything. I talked to most of the people involved. And um, and so we, we put it together. And we were one week from going to the printer. And Daphne Stidham called me, and she said that she had heard I was writing a book. And I said yes, and she asked if she could read the manuscript before it was printed. Uh-oh. And for a journalist, it's, no, no, you can't. Right. I'm not going to do that. And the next, the next thing was her very high-priced attorneys called my publisher, and again, they asked to see the manuscript. 
And the publisher said, well, it was up to me. And I said, no. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. Okay, hold up right there. Okay. I'm talking to the two authors. Why no? Okay, look on your cage and try to get you to not publish. Right. Anyways, so why not give them the manuscript? At least you'll know what it is they don't like. Please. Well, I, I knew what I knew what she wouldn't like. She wouldn't like me saying that she was the first suspect. And that's what her her lawyers came out and said. I, I'm sure you're not going to say she was the first suspect. And I said, yes, I do. And they said, well, just because she's the wife. And I said, no, <laughs> because she sat up and she knew her husband had killed before they even told her. And every deputy that night said she was a suspect, but she was never investigated. And um, as a as a journalist, that's one of the first rules that you're taught. You never you never show your notes or your story to a source before it's printed. Um, Unless they've already been convicted. Such, <laughs> no, even if even if they've been convicted, it's just something you don't do because oh, that's right. you're you're, right, you're, you're basing right. everything you're basing everything on public record, and even though. There's something in the United States prior restraint. It hasn't. It doesn't work. People can't stop someone from publishing something, but they can certainly sue you afterwards. Yes. Or as these people tried to do, they started to outlawyer my publisher, and he knew that everything I wrote was based on the police report, a personal interview, court testimony, and I had all of the notes to back it up. But they could make him pay so much for his lawyers that it's not profitable not pr- for him right, right, to publish right. my book. And when was so that's uh, what ended up? Yeah, when was this? I'm sorry. What year was this? This was in 2008. Wow. Yeah, yeah. that's really so we say dirty pool for them to do that. See what I usually do. Yeah, and do, you would wonder. What, you, what you I usually would do is why she wouldn't want that out there. Right. Well, see what, what where I got a little bit confused there, where I spoke out of turn, shall we say, is that while I don't show the manuscript to a person who's in the book, such as the convicted person, uh, if they've already been convicted, I will give them the uh, the right to say, tell me anything they want to say and put it in the book, uh, even if it contradicts what everybody else says. You know, right. but I don't tell them what everybody else says. <laughs> All right, so it's 2008, and you put the you put the manuscript aside. When did you decide to to move forward with it, and how did you get well, to Wild Blue Press? Yes, yes, and you know I, I did have it on the shelf, and I tinkered with it. And in the meantime, uh, we have this wonderful, wonderful thing here in Tucson called the Tucson Festival of Books. And um, it, it was modeled after the L.A. Times Festival of Books. And it's a great resource, not only for readers who can meet their authors and hear them talk, but writers. And so I would go every year, and I learned more about book writing, opposed to writing a very, very long book. my agents there, and, and, and I learned from her, and she said, oh, the first chapter. No, 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 that can't be the first chapter. Right. <laughs> and I said, why? That's when they discover the body. That's how Dateline starts. That's how everything starts. No, no, no. 
And so I, I had to rethink my book and reorder it. And, 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 and it's, uh, you know, yeah, it took 10 years to get published, but it's, I think it's a much better book now than when I first wrote it because I learned more about book writing in that time. Yeah, the big challenge for a journalist going from writing for newspapers and magazines to writing a book yeah. is, is you have to keep them going forward. You know, you, you can't encapsulate and everything come to a conclusion in the first chapter. Yes, yes. yes. And, and another thing that I, I realized as I was learning more about it is I could write it. Now, I call this, I, I call it my city confidential style. Are you familiar with that show? What is it? What was the style? City Confidential. Well, no, I haven't seen that. I'm sorry. Um, it's one of my favorite shows. It was off the air for a while, but it's come back on. And um, and oddly enough, they contacted me recently about perhaps going on the show. But this show, what I, they take older crimes and they put them in context of the city and the time that it happened. Ah. So when I when I I would do articles like that, and I did this one big article on this case for the Tucson Citizen, as kind of like the you know, the very beginnings of, of my book. And it was taking, you know, the three central characters, uh, Brian Stidham, Brad Schwartz, Bruce Bigger, finding everything I could about them and talking about how their lives converged at this one horrible point. Right. Very good. Very good. Ten, and so things. when I thought about that, for my book, I thought, you know, even Tucson is a character. What was happening in Tucson at the time? And um, and so it, it became more character-driven, which is what is most interesting about this story, the, the characters involved. Right. You know, we have, have a former prosecutor who was uh, disbarred for her relationship with Brad Schwartz, her ex-fiancé, and... And and there's so many people who were you know whose lives were intertwined by this that um, it, it really it was it was really fun to rewrite. Yeah. <laughs> Rewrites are always so fun. And I threw out one chapter completely because an editor said it detracted from the story, and I didn't want anything to detract from the story. So so it, well, you know, I, for me, I, I, love I to identify write with books. you so much on this process. And uh, according to research on our program, well, one thing our listeners love the most is exactly what we're doing right now. The writing process. Is the writing process. Mm. We love hearing true crime authors tell what they go through writing the books. And uh, you're pleasing our audience greatly today. Uh, oh, great. <laughs> and I, I can really identify people. with, because uh, I'm going through the same thing right now, restructuring a book that uh, Frank Gerardo and I have been working on for the past few years. And it's exactly oh, I know Frank. Uh, what's that? I know Frank. Well, you'll wow. be. I love his stuff. He's a great writer. Yes, yes. And he comes from the same journalistic background. Uh, former editor of the Pasadena Star News. Well, let me uh, let me help you out there, Burl. Yeah. Um, Burl and Frank have a bestseller that they wrote a couple of years ago, Betrayal in Blue. Yes. You know the oh. second most corrupt cop in New York. Yes. Oh, hmm, very, very well. You did very well with that one. Uh, yeah, the thing is, we we write, but we never. It's you know, co co-authored, but we never write together. We're never in the same room at the same time. <laughs> he takes one part, I take another. Then we, you know, cut and paste and glue them together. 
But what we're doing on this one, you'll get a kick out of this, is we have bonus material. We've taken, like, say, the chapter you cut out because it detracted from the flow of the story. Right. We saved the chapter, and we have it at the end of the book as bonus material. Uh-oh. Oh, wow. Kind of like a DVD. You know, you got bonus yeah. material. Yeah. Yeah. So we have lots of bonus material. <laughs> How interesting. All right. So um our uh, our in air quotes uh, our murderer or the or the person who requested the murder he had a lot of problems uh prior to the incident. <laughs> he was, he was yes, messed he up. Did. He was messed up. He was. He was. Um and and you know it's 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 kind of hard to to believe but uh I don't believe he was all bad. He made some big mistakes in his life. Um, but there there are still some people, you know, uh, when I'm out talking about my book, I meet so many people, especially here in Tucson, who, who knew both of them or one of them, uh, Dr. Schwartz or Dr. Stidham. And um, he, was, he was a very, very excellent surgeon. Um, he was one of the few in, in this country to practice, and I, I've never learned how to pronounce it, some kind of procedure. One of the few in the country to do that. Um, he he also volunteered. There was um, Doctors Without Borders. Right. And he volunteered to, to go down to South America and um, operate on these poor children who needed eye surgery. And... Um, he was very proud of the fact that this one village, the, the women in the village, um, wove him a mural, and he, he hung it up in his office. He was very proud of that. Um, on the other hand, he had a lot of flaws. <laughs> he, he was not faithful to his wife, which led to the destruction of his marriage, and uh, he had a lot of questionable affairs. Um, and he, he was, he, you know, Brian Stidham made him angry when, when Dr. Schwartz, he was, he was, uh, abusing Vicodin because he had a, a shoulder injury and he was getting his fiance, the former prosecutor to, um, to give him some pills and his office manager and uh, eventually they were caught by the DEA and, um, and convicted in federal court. And as part of that, um, you know, of course, his uh, medical license was taken away. Yikes. And he was ordered to go to rehab in Cook County, Illinois, where apparently they have a facility that specializes in medical personnel who b- become addicted. That's not uncommon. That they one of the, an important point. There you go again. An important point here is that Brian has only been in the practice for about a month at this point. Yeah, yeah. And um, and and he this was Brian thought this was his dream job. Um, his wife didn't want to move to Tucson. His best friend didn't want him to move to Tucson. But he was coming to Tucson to work for Dr. Schwartz because Dr. Schwartz wanted to hand over the children's eye surgery part of the practice to Brian. And to Brian, as he said, this was the, the key to his kingdom. And this is what he always wanted. And it was, you know, a move up for him. So he was excited about it. And he loved Tucson. It's very pretty here. He loved to go hiking. We have 
um, uh, mountains, what we call mountains, <laughs> in other states might just be hills, hills but yeah. we call them mountains. He loved to go hiking, and, um, and, and the Tucson community was very, very welcoming to him. And then all of a sudden he gets in town and his boss, you know, the, the office gets raided by the DEA and his boss gets carted away. Actually, by this time, Dr. Sh- uh, Dr. Schwartz wasn't taking Vic- Vicodin. Um, he had had shoulder surgery, so he didn't need it. But to get his medical license back, he needed to do the rehab. So he, you know, he left the medical practice in Brian's care with his his parents um, looking after the the bills. And uh, and Brian was scared to death. He's like, I don't know what I've gotten myself into. Mm-hmm. And so he started thinking, well. Uh, maybe I'll go out on my own now. Maybe this is the time. And and that's the, the moment that prosecutors say Dr. Schwartz built this toxic rage where he was so angry with Brian, he wanted him killed. Hmm. He I even, know that he doesn't make much sense, <laughs> but uh, I've but, even heard of more stupid reasons for murder than that. But that is... It seems like he took all the rage about every unpleasant aspect of his life and dumped it all on this guy. Yeah. Yeah. And there were many times when he would tell his fiance, you know, I want him killed. And and apparently, the way it seemed at trial, they had a bunch of witnesses who, it seemed like everybody, every time Brad Schwartz met someone, he'd say, hey, do you know someone who can kill someone for me? <laughs> That's subtle. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and a lot of them were were women that he was sleeping with. Who were, you know, excited to be with the doctor and and uh, someone who had money, and um, and some were, you know, not not good people, not not good characters to have around. Or he wanted them to connect him with someone who, you know, was in a gang or or. Uh, he tried. He tried to get his fiancee's, his ex fiancee's, uh, um, ex husband, who who would have been the kind of guy you think would have, you know, no problems killing someone. But he was killed in a drug shootout in uh, Nebraska. This wasn't the prosecutor's ex husband, was it? The prosecutor's not the prosecutor of the case, but the prosecutor who was his ex fiance, now former prosecutor, who was caught up in the Vicodin scandal with him. Really? Yes. But another curious aspect of this is Bruce Bigger. He is not the kind of person you would think would you know, pull a hit on someone. He has no violent criminal history past except for the times when he's been beaten up. <laughs> That's not a good and, reference. <laughs> and and he had he had a drug and alcohol problem because he was in a um a car crash when he was younger. And um, and he had you know that's if you see pictures of him he's got this Bastin nose um, that's where that came from and he again was self medicating which is why they believe that Dr Schwartz and Bruce Bigger when they came into contact when Bruce Bigger was a patient after getting beaten up um, that they they related to each other because they had they had pain they were self medicating um, and things like that but. But like I said, Bruce Bigger was not a violent person. 
Um, and he, he actually had access to a gun. And so if you're, if you're the average kind of guy, like Bruce Bigger, who wants to do a favor for your friend by killing someone, a knife isn't normally what you would choose. Right. Especially if you had access to a gun. A knife, you have to. Well, that's close, that's like the first said. thing that bothered me was the fact that yeah. the victim was stabbed 15 times. That's not typical of a of a murder. That's right, too right. intimate. Yeah, that's a pack crime of passion. Yeah, that's yeah. You know, women use knives. Yes, often do. And this is not in the book, except perhaps by um, maybe intimation. But it was suspected at the time that Brian Stidham was having an affair. Oh, really? The prosecutor of the case came to one of my first book signings, and she confirmed that. And, and that was something... That was something that Brad Schwartz had told me at the time. He knew Brian Stidham was having an affair. And that the woman he was having an affair with was in town when he was stabbed. Now, was so, this an affair allegedly that was taking place prior to him having moved to uh, Tucson? Yes. Yes, she was someone he knew back in Texas. Oh. Ah. Someone he had worked with. Boy, this is a complex one. <clears throat> yeah! <laughs> well, um, you, can't, you can't make this stuff up. No. Yeah, all the evidence appears circumstantial. Yes. All right, so uh, they find the car, because there was just the dead body in the parking lot. The car was gone. They find the car in an apartment complex, and there's bloodstains. They collect evidence from there, and they use DNA as part of the testimony. But there's some problems with this DNA. Yes. Yes, there was... um, uh, The blood that they tested from the car was... Largely um, Dr. Stidham's. But there was one speck of DNA on the radio knob that was from someone else. And during Dr. Schwartz's trial, the defense presented this DNA evidence saying that it was the alleged hitman, Bruce Biggers. And they used a number, and, you know, forgive me, I I don't retain numbers very well, but they said something like it was one in 100 million chance that it was someone else other than Bruce Bigger. Some fantastical number, so the jury would say, oh, my, it's got to be him. It can't be anybody else. But then the defense brought on, DNA experts. He said it was more like one in a hundred thousand. And so, you know, it it chopped the number down by quite a bit. Now, by the time of Bruce Bigger's trial, the prosecution did a very good thing for their side of bringing in these razzle-dazzle DNA experts who kind of fluffed up the presentation, they couldn't change the numbers, but they made a very good presentation um, to the jury. 
But DNA, you know, the jury's the jurors said it, the DNA really didn't play a part in 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 uh, in their verdicts. That it was it was more the the circumstantial evidence, the the number of witnesses who um, said that uh, Schwartz wanted someone to kill Dr. Stidham. And that, 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 um, unlike TV, DNA isn't the definitive answer in this case. It yeah, seems yeah. to me there's something really screwy about the uh, judicial system in Arizona at this point. Because the whole case seems screwy to me. I'm surprised they didn't yeah. throw the whole damn thing out. It's, it's been interesting to watch the appeals because, you know, so far the appeals have held up. But there definitely was, you know, there was, there was a lot of pressure on the sheriff to solve this crime because a young doctor had been killed. It was, this wasn't a drive-by shooting that, you know, nobody cared about, but the people involved, of course. But there was a lot of pressure. And um, when, uh, when they finally, you know, it was about two weeks that they finally arrested um, Dr. Schwartz, um, they actually had a perp walk which doesn't happen too often, and the sheriff later regretted having you know, calling the media for the perp walk because he acknowledged that that usually cements the verdict in the court of public opinion, and and to see this this doctor in scrubs being led away, and uh, and the sheriff boasted about how they found him naked in bed with a woman, how scintillating that was, and it was just. You know, and one of the things that they did not do, that his lawyer even acknowledged, they never talked to Dr. Schwartz before they arrested him. What? No. They talked to everybody else, it seems, in Tucson, and anyone who knew him, they never talked to him. So they could never contradict his story, you know, with whatever he said afterwards. And of course, once he was arrested, he wasn't going to talk. This the whole thing is crazy. Yeah. It is. So is there is there any possibility that okay, let's back this up. Did did our victim's wife have any contact or knowledge of Bigler? Uh no, no, I I I haven't found anything that that suggests that. No. Right. So hypothetically, if they didn't commit the crime, we're thinking that she did, and drove far away, and then walked home. Apparently, some other way to get um, home. Yeah. Which yeah. That that would have to be. Uh, unless, unless she got someone to drive her, but she had well, someone on her you side. Know, if you know, how hard would it have been? I mean, stab, how many times we stabbed? Seventeen, fifteen times. Fifteen times. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a lot of blood, and she's going to have some of it on her or clothes. Yeah. And if she gets into another vehicle to drive away. Right, there would be blood in that vehicle, and they all they had to do was open the door and look. Yeah, but they never investigated her, and they, they, like I said, they asked for her clothes that night that she was wearing that day. They asked to look for, you know, in in her laundry basket or whatever. They never did, 
and I I actually asked the lead detective um, during one of the trials why she wasn't, you know, because they thought, as some cops do, that if I report the, the descendants' side of things, I'm for the defendant, even though I'm just reporting what their defense is. Right. So, so she she walked up to me and she said, "You don't still think Dr. Schwartz didn't do this, do you?" And I said, "I'm not saying that, but why didn't you investigate Daphne? Why didn't you rule her out?" Yeah, Daphne was the victim's wife. The victim's wife who sat up in bed and asked how he was killed. Right. And she said, "Oh, if you knew her, you knew she would do something like that." Oh yeah, right. Now, maybe she didn't, maybe she did, but that whole thing of how was my husband brutally murdered? Who's, who would stab him 15 times? Yeah, and, and especially now, they knew, the defense didn't know, but they knew he was having an affair. And if they knew he was having an affair, and there's a possibility that his wife could have done it, they didn't investigate her at all? Well, isn't this exculpatory? Evidence that that the prosecution should have divulged. That's a good. That's a good question. Wow, I'm on um, a roll. <laughs> although I believe, uh, even though they did try, they see the reason why we didn't report on this at the time is um, Daphne as a suspect was um, uh, excluded from the trial. The judge would not allow a third party defense. What? So, yeah, um, even though she technically was. And so I believe that it can't be part of the appeal at some point if it wasn't entered in trial, something like that. I'm not a legal expert. I just like what they say. Hmm. And then our two, our, our two individuals that were convicted have, uh, have, have documented that they are not. Boy, we have to buy you a new microphone. Yeah, they're not. Guilty. Try it oh, again. Oh, I'm sorry, I missed that. Go ahead, Merle. Okay. <laughs> what were, what was you trying to ask? I was asking. I was saying that the, the two defendants that were convicted convicted are uh, have steadfastly have steadfastly indicated denied. they were innocent. Yeah, they've maintained yeah. their innocence all along. Yes, and, and I did have some correspondence with Brad Schwartz, and he he still maintained that um, he he had his 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 daughter, his uh, his lawyer was was positive that he was going to put him on the stand and that he could counter all of the evidence that seemed to show him being guilty, but he was. The problem was he and the prosecutor, Dr. Schwartz and the prosecutor, I mean, you could, you could tell they hated each other. And so his team was afraid that she would push his buttons and make him explode on the stand, and that wouldn't be good for them. So they, but he told me some of that evidence, some of the things that were said against him, like Bruce Bigger was driving around with a, a knife strapped to his bicycle, um, 
when it really was, and I, I believe Bruce Bigger's mom told me that too, it, it was actually barbecue equipment. He was homeless and he was going, you know, couch surfing with friends. And the one thing he could do was barbecue, apparently. Everybody liked his barbecue. So he he kept his barbecue equipment, you know, so he kept it on his bike because he had yeah, no. He was seen no on his bicycle with meat tenderizer. <laughs> <laughs> This case is so bizarre. <laughs> Remind me not to get arrested in Arizona. Oh, yeah, please don't. You know what they say, you know, uh, come on vacation, leave on probation. Yeah, leave <laughs> incarcerated. <laughs> That's a tragic story. That does not speak well. Uh, I wonder how many people in prison in Arizona have actually committed a crime. Oh, come on now, Pearl. <laughs> We know none of them. <laughs> Just ask them. Well, no, actually, according to, <laughs> according to recent research, up to 65% oh. of people in prison are actually guilty. <laughs> we've, had, we've had several exonerations from death row. And, um, and there was one prosecutor who was disbarred from, uh, from from law because he perjured testimony from a cop in two death penalty trials. And and the odd thing is, okay, you want to think this story is weird? That ex-prosecutor who was disbarred was working as a paralegal for Dr. Schwartz's legal team. And he's the one who talked him out of testifying. <laughs> wow. Oh, boy. This, uh, this is, oh, well, this is just... <laughs> bizarre and it gets even weirder after the trials are over and uh, a lot of people are touched by this crime in uh, bad ways yes a lot of people lose their jobs uh, a lot of people get sued and it just spirals out of control Yes, and, and on top of everything, uh, you know, Dr. Bryan had two very young children, and he he was he adored them. As um, after he died, um, I, I interviewed Daphne, and she talked about how um, he just loved to come home. When he would come home, he would delay his own dinner because he wanted to have time with the children. Yeah, and and he loved to take them out. You know, outdoors and 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 everything. Here we have in Tucson these great hiking trails. They were very young, so of course they didn't do all the hiking. But um, by all accounts, he just adored those children, and they've had to grow up without him. Oh, that's tragic. Yeah, well, she t- she picked up the kids and moved back to Texas. Yes, immediately um, after his there was a service that his friends had for him here. Um, shortly after he died. And uh, then she moves back to Texas. That's kind of peculiar. No, no, she's from Texas. She went No, home. I thought she didn't attend the memorial. No, she attended the oh, memorial. Okay. She didn't attend yeah. the trial. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. She didn't. She didn't like Tucson. So yeah, nobody can blame her for. No, you know, she didn't. She didn't come back for the trials though. Right, so her, so uh, Dr. Schwartz's ex-girlfriend, prosecutor, right, she gets disbarred yes. eventually. Yes. And, yes. Uh, and uh, everybody and their brother is suing everybody for wrongful death and whatever else is going on. Yes, the, the county got sued 
because um, because of the, the, the links between um, Dr. Schwartz's ex-fiance and the prosecuting office, prosecutors. Um, so saying that had she told her prosecutor friends um, that Dr. Schwartz was threatening Dr. Stidham, that something could have been done. But in actuality, Dr. Stidham knew Dr. Schwartz was saying these things. But didn't take them as a serious threat, no doubt. No, he, he, you know, he was just like, you know, he's blowing off steam. And one of, one of Dr. Uh, Stidham's uh, good friends, who's also a doctor, said, you know, I don't know how many times I, one of my partners has gotten me mad and I said, oh, I could kill him, but I'm not gonna. Yeah. And, and really, with cops, they can't, they can't arrest somebody or do something if a crime hasn't happened just because it's, you know, threatened and, and. And a lot of these people, they all, they testified, they said they didn't take them seriously. Wow. And then there, then there was the, uh, um, so our prosecuting uh, girlfriend is, is disbarred, and yes. there's a big party at the office she used to work at, and her friends wanted yes. to invite her. Yes. What happened with that mess? Well, um, yeah, and this was, this was part of the chapter that I cut out because it was interesting for people in Tucson when it happened, but apparently for an outside audience, it detracted from the story. So, so she, even though she was, um, uh, I, I'm not, she wasn't yet disbarred, but she was fired from the Pima, Pima County Attorney's Office when she was, um, and she was uh, caught up in Ed Schwartz grade. <laughs> uh, drug grade. Yeah. Interestingly enough, though, she was asked to resign, and that comes into play in a little bit. There was a you know four or five, six people. I, I know them all. Um, they were all very close friends, and they would hang, hang out after work. Well, one of them had an annual Halloween party that, you know, everybody wanted to go to, and it was for charity, to raise money for charity. And it was known as the party of the year. And so after Lourdes was fired, or, or resigned, actually, from the Pima County Attorney's Office, um, Brad, who was throwing the party, said, I, maybe I should tell my supervisor that she's going to be there. And when he did, the supervisor said, well, uninvite her. She can't be there. And they're like, it's not an official function. It's just a party. And because of that, and because the, the rest of, of that whole group of friends would not shun Lourdes, they were all fired. Oh, really? Did they sue? Uh, they 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 um, they didn't sue. They um, they protested. They they um, complained to the to the uh, job ethics board. I can't remember what it's called. The county entity that you know d dispute for for HR disputes. And um, and they um, and 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 by and large, except for I, I believe oh, it's been so long. I believe except for one. Um, they said their firing wasn't justified. 
was not justified. Yeah. Was not justified, yes. And, um, and, and the one exception, I believe, was one of the, the, the men in the group who Lourdes was good friends with, and she's the one that um, she told him that, that Brad was threatening to kill Brian. And, and they said, well, he should have done something about that. She should have done something about it, and he should have done something about it. So I, I believe they, they held that firing up but said the others weren't. But by that time, they, were, they had all moved on. They had all become uh, defense attorneys or uh, public defenders. Um, and Lourdes was eventually disbarred, and she's, she's uh, worked now as a paralegal. Um, for, I believe, one of the Indian tribes out here, the last I heard. What an amazing story and a fabulous book. Toxic <laughs> Rage. Yes, thank you very uh, much. Buy it, read it, and try to figure it out. A.J. <laughs> Flat, Toxic Rage, Wild Blue Press. Check it out. Thank you so much for, for being coming. on the show. It was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Take care. Bye. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Hey. That's me. What be next? Magic Ben Allen in the Defense of Decadence. Live in the Light of Lounge. And I'm like... <laughs> the most bizarre cases I've ever heard.